1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me today for a conversation with Meredith K. Ray about her new book, Margarita Siroki's Letters to Galileo. Astronomy, Astrology, and Poetics in 17th Century Italy. This came out in 2016 with Paul Grave Macmillan. And as, you, as you'll hear us talking about at the end of the conversation, it's a great slim book that's useful not just for reading, um, for research purposes, but also for teaching. So what it does is it offers translations of a collection of 11 letters, most but not all of which were between Soroki and Galileo, and also offers context uh, within which to understand some of what was happening in those letters. So what you'll hear in the context of the conversation to come um, is a conversation about the nature of the documents, about the larger context um, that these documents were written in, and about some of the major themes that thread through the letters. It's a really fascinating figure, um, a Margarita Soroki that we're talking about. It's a way to make... Make Galileo um, part of a story in which he's not necessarily at the center and to kind of center women um, more in the history of science and in the history of early modern science in particular. Um, and it's just a really great read. Um, so with that, I'll let you get to it. Um, and I, I just I hope you have a chance to take a look at the letters yourself. Um, There are some fascinating moments in there, and you'll hear us reading and talking about some of them in the conversation to come. Thanks very, very much for listening and for the support of the channel that that represents, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Meredith K. Ray about her new book, Margarita Sirocchi's Letters to Galileo. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Meredith. Thanks so much um, for being with me, for making this incredibly useful and interesting book, and for making time to talk about it.
0: Thank you for having me. Of
1: course. So since we've already had a chance to talk for the channel, I'm not going to start with the traditional questions, but I'll start a little bit more broadly. And listeners hopefully can go and listen to that conversation too, as a kind of prologue or um, or epilogue to this conversation. So uh, broadly put, what are you working on when you're not editing and translating collections of 17th century letters?
0: Well, I... I I've always had a interest in um, letter writing. So <laughs> I'm often working on other things having to do with um, letters of various kinds. But right now, I'm actually working on um, a an edition of a work by Archangela Tarabotti, who's a 17th century nun. So that's kind of a different um, aspect of 17th century culture. But she was a, a feminist, um, sort of an early feminist thinker and a cloistered nun in uh, Venice. And she wrote um, several works protesting the practice of putting women into um, convents when they didn't have a vocation. So, um, and she and she authored a, a sort of trilogy of works. Kind of, um, I think she was trying to suggest the model of Dante. So, she, the the first work is called Convent Hell, and the second <laughs> the second work, which is uh, has been lost, but the second work is called the Purgatory of the Unhappily Married uh, Women, and the third one is called Convent Paradise. And that's the one where she sort of tries to resign herself to her uh, her fate. So that's um, what I'm working on right now with a colleague at uh, George Washington University, Lynn Westwater.
1: It sort of sounds like a trilogy of racy, awesome novels.
0: I know. I think a lot of a lot of the things I work on, I think would make amazing novels.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of that, right? I mean, that's um, a lot of what we'll or that's part of what we'll talk about today. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. So the project that we're talking about today contextualizes and also translates 17th century letters, mostly but not entirely, between Margarita Sorocchi, um, who lived from 1560 to 1617, and Galileo Galilei, who lived from 1564 to 1642. Um, so, Meredith, how did you come to this particular project. Why these letters and why a volume um, dedicated to these letters in particular?
0: Um, so when I was working, I was working on a a book, um, that came out in 2015. So just before this one called Daughters of Alchemy and that book explored kind of the range of, um, ways in which early modern women were involved in scientific culture. So whether they were engaging with it as practitioners or, um, writing about it or um, in some cases, as turned out to be the case with Margarita Sarocchi, um, that whether they were involved in like academic culture and interacting with um, other um, scientists and mathematicians and people that were interested in natural philosophy through those channels. And so um, in Daughters of Alchemy, I have a chapter on uh, Sarocchi and on another figure, um, Camilla Erculiani, where um, I sort of start to explore this idea of um, different kinds of collaboration and partnerships between men and women in early modern intellectual culture and so um that's when I first came across these letters and um they I just found them so fascinating and it's the kind, and and I wasn't able in that book to um to talk about all the letters in detail so I I, I refer to them but I couldn't I couldn't include them all in the um, in the book. And so after I finished the book, I just I just kept thinking there was so much there that I hadn't been able to really fully explore. And on top of that, the letters themselves were just so fascinating and and offer such like a rich um, kind of trove of material for for people that are um, interested in all different aspects of early modern culture, you know, whether um, you're interested in women and gender studies, or history of science, or literary studies, there's just all this material there. And so, you know, it's not like these letters are unknown. I mean, they're um, included in the, um, the Favaro, you know, national edition, you can find them in the Italian online. And you do see people refer to them, but um, there hasn't been a study just of those letters, you know, in their own right and kind of you know, putting them into the context of what was going on and who she was. Um, Most of the, most of what has been written about these letters really just focuses on them, you know, why they're interesting with respect to Galileo, as opposed to approaching them as, you know, what is interesting about her, that she's in contact with a figure like Galileo. And so um, I just was very surprised to find that there was no full English translation of these letters, you know, no way that you could just easily access that. And so that was, um, that was just the original idea um, for the for the book. And I thought originally, I might just do a much smaller um, thing, really. (laughs) And then I just started, you know, working on it. And the more I worked on it, the more there was to say. And um, even now that the book is out, I feel like I still there's still so much more work that I could do to fill in all the, you know, The blank spaces that still remain in what we know about her and um, her relationships with people like Galileo.
1: So let's actually talk a little bit about who she was, right, and take it right there. Um, Can you say a little bit about what you know about her? Like, what do we need to know about her um, that you'd like to share? And um, secondarily, how has she been understood in and presented in the historiography thus far?
0: Um so she she's an interesting figure um I think you know in in some ways unique but I think we're also learning more and more that um there there were there were other women like her that were involved in intellectual society in similar ways um we just maybe don't know as much about about all those women, but there's, you know, people are doing work on trying to, you know, reconstruct uh, records of academies and things like that and find records of female membership in those academies. But Saroki um, is just kind of an interesting case because she was born, so she was born in Naples and um, we just don't have much information about her early life or we don't so far. The main, um, the information we have comes primarily from a a manuscript, um, a contemporary manuscript, like a biography of her, that's a Neapolitan manuscript. And it, um, from that, we learn that she, her parents died when she was rather young. And somewhere in that time in Naples, um, her family had a connection to Guglielmo Sirleto, who um, was a cardinal. And through that connection, whether that was a, um, whether he was a relative, some sources say that maybe he was an uncle, but that's not clear to me if that was the case, if he was just a family friend, but he took an interest in her. And when her parents died, he, um, he was then invited to Rome to become the, um, librarian of the, the Vatican librarian. He was a very learned man and, you know, known for his interest in Latin and Greek and, um, he took her, he took her with him. And so in Rome, he he kind of oversaw her education and she was placed for a time in a convent, but he also um, had her educated, tutored by um, Rinaldo Corso, who was um, the adopted son of Vittoria Colonna, the poet. And um, then he had Luca Valerio, who is a mathematician also from Naples, tutor her in, um, mathematics. So she was very, very well educated. And um, she was something of a prodigy. So by the time she was 15, she was contributing to um, anthologies, she was writing poems. Um, There's a whole series of works that we that she was said to have written, we have, you know, documentation from other Sources, um, you know, among her contemporaries referring to uh, an essay she wrote on, on Euclid, for example, and various other things, a translation from the Greek. Um, those works have been lost. But what we do have is the epic poem that she wrote and published. So she is kind of she's an interesting figure because she was independent in certain ways. I think she clearly had the benefit of um, you know, of a, a certain status and I think probably a certain protection through this connection with um, the cardinal who then dies. But I I, I imagine that the um, that that connection kind of remains around her and is perhaps something that uh, made her kind of an attractive ally for Galileo later on. Um, But she then in, um, in Rome, she sort of throws herself into this really lively, um, academic intellectual culture. And she is a member of three different um, academies. So, you know, actual organized academies. And in one case, she helps found it. Um, So that's kind of interesting in terms of, you know, what we know about how involved women were with academic culture. And um, she also was known for hosting a salon in her home. So she was um, kind of the, the, the locus for this community of people that would come and discuss astrology or astrology and astronomy and various topics in natural philosophy and also literature. Um, so she knew a lot of people and we have lots of, um, you know, letters of various people describing how they went to Rome and they spent the evening at, you know, Signora Sarocchi's salon and how delightful it was and all the connections that they made there. So she very much a part of, um, this kind of lively, uh, culture of intellectual exchange that was happening in Rome. Um, and she did, she did get married eventually, but the, her husband just seems to be very much a, a background a presence. You know, we know his name. Um, he possibly contributed a poem to one of the editions of her, of her epic poem, but we just don't know much about him. And she's much more um, a, a sort of a figure who existed on, on her own.
1: And in fact, one of the letters, right, um, and specifically I'm thinking of letter 11, talks a little bit about this. This is a letter that's not from... Um, uh, Margarita Soroki to Galileo or vice versa, but instead is from this Naples mathematician that you mentioned, Luca Valerio, to Galileo from 1613. And he says, Signora Margarita Soroki, who from now on will be more free to philosophize having been left a widow. So, <laughs> so it's, it's this really weird um, moment yeah. where he's yeah. like, oh, by the way, she'll have more time right. to philosophize now because, you know, her husband died. And then he just kind of goes on to talk about um, the topic of the letter. So um, what's going on here? Right? I mean, what, what do we know yeah. about her personal life and sort of how has this been, or how yeah. has this shaped how um, she's been written about up till now?
0: Yeah, so I think, and that's a great question. And and one of the things that's just interesting about studying her is to see um, the way she has kind of been portrayed throughout, um, you know, historiography, usually historiography devoted to Galileo or to Luca Valerio that kind of hats her as a as a side note but um there has been sort of this uh, kind of fascination but in in sort of a negative way with the idea that she was this independent you know very highly educated um woman who who was herself the focus of a of an intellectual community so um Scholars kind of haven't quite (laughs) known what to to do about that. So there's been, for example, a lot of uh, speculation. um, I mean, even in in her own time about what the nature of her relationship with Luca Valerio, the mathematician, was. So, you know, we know that he was her tutor, but he also remained... he he clearly remained an important part of her life um, throughout, throughout her life. And he was an important part of this interaction with Galileo. So it's sort of interesting because there are also all, um, all these letters from Valerio to Galileo. So they, they met first and then um, Saroki was introduced to Galileo via her connection to Valerio. But in, in virtually every letter um, from Valerio to Galileo, he mentions Saroki, And often when people write to Saroki. They mentioned Valerio. So they were clearly seen as, um, you know, people that were, that were close, but the speculation has been, you know, of course that they were having an affair and, um, you know, he lived in her house for a time. And what does that mean? Um, but to me, you know, when I started doing research, I found that, you know, yes, he did live in her house for a time, but she also had another female boarder. So clearly she was taking, you know, she was taking people in as boarders. So that doesn't necessarily um, mean anything. And really, what I think is so interesting is that these two people, Valerio and Saroki, had this this intellectual relationship, I mean, they were clearly exchanging ideas, they were reading Galileo's works together, discussing them, writing back to Galileo with their opinions. Galileo solicits both of their opinions, respects both of their opinions. Um, but she has been portrayed by historians as basically just you know Valerio's um, student and possibly his lover. And then at a certain point when um, Valerio's relationship with Galileo falls apart and his whole relationship to the scientific community in, in Rome becomes really shaky. Um, people beginning in her own time and continuing today in, 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 in among historians, they blame her and they say that, um, you know, she was... Um, uh, you know, vindictive and attention seeking and, you know, just all, yeah. all, all, the, all the negative yeah. things you often hear said about, um, women, women right. Writers and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I found all that, um, surprising cause that's the, you know, if you go read almost anything about her, you'll find something to that effect that, you know, she was, she was this brilliant poet and she was famous, but she, you know, she just, she, she just always wanted attention and she, everything that she did was kind of motivated by her, um, you know, her irritation or her anger at not getting what she wanted in, you know, certain situations. So it's been sort of interesting to try to unravel that and to just look at it a different way. And I think when you, when you don't approach her automatically from that perspective, you can read things in a completely different way. So, you know, for example, that line that you just read, um, you know, much has been made about that, you know, that well, Saroki, who was, you know, basically such a terrible wife and <laughs> a horrible person when she was finally, you know, left alone was just, you know, delighted by it. But I, you know, I think that really he was, you know, quite serious there that she was an intellectual and um, she does, you know, have s- sort of more, s- more space and more freedom at this point to be able to devote herself to her work.
1: And like, who cares if they were lovers, right? Because she wrote wrote this amazing epic poem and this is what um, features in a lot of the letters. So let's talk a little bit about that for listeners Mm -hmm. um, who know nothing about Soroki and don't know anything about this epic poem. Can you say a little bit um, just kind of briefly about the nature of the poem? Like, what's it about? What's notable for you about what's Mm -hmm. going on in this text?
0: So the poem is uh, the Skanderbeide, and it is an epic poem that uh, takes a subject that was actually um, kind of a popular subject. So she was not, you know, the first to choose this subject matter, and it tells the story of an um, of a an Albanian character. So it's set, it's set in the, in the East and it's the, it's basically a conversion story about, uh, this character, George Skander. There's this historical figure, George Skanderbeg, And, um, so she, she tells that story and she's trying to follow uh, the model of Tasso. So Tasso in, in Italy was the, um, the author of the uh, Jerusalem e Liberata. So there were, there were kind of two big poems in, in Italy. One was Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, which is a, a romance, you could say, like a chivalric romance. And then you had Tasso's Jerusalem e Liberata, which is an epic poem and has a conversion story. And um, it's kind of a more... Um, Orthodox poem, let's say. And writers were sort of, it was almost like you had to decide which model you were going to follow, which one you were going to support. There was a lot of debate over which one was better. And so um, you find quite a lot of these poems that sort of try to follow in one track or another. And she was um, trying to take on the, the model of Tasso and give us this um, you know this this very long poem with lots of you know fighting a conversion at the center um, so everything kind of you know comes together in in that story that's supposed to be the the heart of the stories the conversion of the of the main character to Christianity. Um, but it does have at the same time kind of all these little um, offshoot stories and characters. And one of the interesting things about the poem is that it had uh, two editions. So the first edition was in uh, 1606 and it was an incomplete edition. And then the uh, second edition came out in 1623 after her death. And so what she... um, what she's writing to Galileo about is kind of what the revisions she is making to this poem between 1606 and then the later the later version of the poem and you know one thing that's kind of interesting to to note is that um some of the episodes that appear in 1606 are no longer there in 1623 And I think that has a lot to do with just the change, you know, the sort of rapidly changing uh, cultural climate in in Rome and kind of what she felt uh, comfortable writing about what she thought would be acceptable. So, um, for example, in the 1606 edition, you have a couple episodes concerning um, female characters that... um, where i'm thinking of one in particular where you have a a sort of sorceress figure which is a kind of a trope of the of the genre um but the this figure uses astrology for example she uses um love magic and there's sort of these these aspects about it that um Clearly, Saroki was worried about from the beginning because there's a uh, an introductory letter uh, before the poem begins that explains, you know, these are just um, anything you might find in here that uh, might deal with these sort of, you know, things pertaining to natural philosophy or anything like that is all um, just the poet's imagination. It's not, you know, I'm just telling a story. So she was clearly already kind of uh, worried about that. And then she pulls that particular episode um from the the final version. So she made so she made some changes, but that was one of the things that she was talking to Galileo about was was uh, the revisions she wanted to make to this poem in terms of not only the content but also the style of the poem.
1: And the, the actual, like, the practical aspects of those revisions were really interesting yeah. to trace through the letters, right? Because it's not at all, oh, I'm just going to, like, make some changes and then, like, whip it off to you and you should have it soon. I mean, it was like, I'm waiting for the copier to make a copy of this thing, then I can get it to you. And then she, mm-hmm. she gets it to him and she's like, actually, can you physically send it back to me? Because there are other right. changes I want to make. So it's it's a really interesting window into the materiality, I think. Yeah. Of you know, like making revisions, which you might think of as a fairly simple thing, but um, doesn't seem at all to be um, simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I loved that about it. Just sort of getting getting a sense. Yeah. Into the um, yeah. As you say, the materiality of the actual, you know, object as she's producing it and also just seeing how how she works, what her work processes and her style because she, um, you know, there's that great line in there where she tells Galileo, she's asking him for his help. And then she says, you know, if you can help me out with this, um, I'll pay pay you back by writing you into the poem. And um, that's, you know, that happens in these epic poems, you'll see that they, um, you know, different, usually like bigger (laughs) dynastic families are remembered and celebrated in the poem itself. So she's, you know, kind of offering to do that. <clears throat> she says she'll write him and his members of his, I think, his ancestors into the poem. But um, she says to him, and and don't worry, because, you know, I, I'm leaving space to write. I think she says, like, I'm leaving some space so that I can insert a prince or two, you know, just kind of like, I'll see who helps me. And then you know, I'm just, I've got that part set aside so I can fix that later. And then she says, and it's no big deal, you know, it won't take me very long at all, you know, just maybe 10 or 15 days to do. (laughs) So she just, um, she's very professional about it and kind of no nonsense.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit, speaking of the kind of materiality of that process, let's talk a little bit about the nature of the documents um, Mm -hmm. that uh, you're working with, and then we'll get into and kind of Dive into a little bit more of the letters themselves. So, you describe um, early in the book the documents in Florence's National Library that pertain to Galileo, including a hand bound book that was dedicated solely to letters between Galileo and his female correspondents. So, can you talk a little bit about um, that uh, book um, and just in general what you take to be the significant or interesting aspects of? the documents that you were working with kind of as documents, right, in the process of finding them and working with them before we actually dive into the contents.
0: Yeah. So, um, so it's, it is interesting because someone, um, you know, an archivist at some point assembled this, um, collection and separated out clearly the the documents, um, sent from Gal, you know, that were exchanged between Galileo and, and female correspondents. And, um, so one of the things that's interesting about it when you see this, just there are, are a lot of them, you know, I think that that's the main um, impression. You kind of can't, you know, you, you, it's it's sort of this wonderful experience. You go to the, the Biblioteca Nazionale in Florence, it's this beautiful old library, and then you're in the manuscript room, which is even more beautiful and, you know, old and atmospheric, and then you call up this, you know, box of documents. It comes, lands on the desk in front of you, and then you open it and you just see that there's, you know, all these letters and so I started paging through it and um you know it's just everything in there is really fascinating there's a letter um uh from um Artemisia Gentileschi the painter um, many letters between Galileo and the wife of the um Tuscan ambassador to Rome and of course this is also where the letters between Galileo and his daughter are and um that's um uh, sword, uh, uh Maria Celeste, Virginia, um, who became Maria Celeste when she joined a convent. And Deva Sobel has published those letters and written that wonderful book, Galileo's Daughter, that was sort of, you know, um, also kind of an inspiration for me, you know, many years ago, in terms of just being able, you know, thinking about approaching a figure like Galileo from a totally different um lens, right, through his relationships with the people around him. Um so those are all um all there and um Serocchi figures uh, prominently. There's more letters there um uh of hers than anyone else except for Maria Celeste.
1: So the letters themselves feature three major themes. And what we'll do is, I think, for most of the rest of our time, we'll kind of dip into those major themes as a way of opening out into some of the letters and talking a little bit about um, the context in which they were produced. Mm -hmm. So one of the themes that you mentioned... Um, is the theme of Soroki asking Galileo to help her revise this epic poem that you yeah. that we were talking about? And listeners might wonder, like, why would she have consulted Galileo for writerly advice, right? And there's right. there's this really wonderful moment in letter one. Uh, this is the letter from Margarita uh, Soroki to Galileo from July 29, 1611 where she says, well, I say to your lordship that the principal favor I desire of you is that you should look over my poem with the greatest diligence and with an enemy eye so that you may note every little error. And I just love that, that yeah. enemy eye. Um, so Galileo, it turns out, was a writer of more than astronomical treatises. He had written sonnets. Um, he had written some like, literary criticism about Dante's hell. He had written comedy. Can you talk a little bit about Galileo um, as a writer? Um, so that mm-hmm. uh, we can kind of inform this aspect of the letter of the letters for listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just will say that um, that line. I mean, everybody just loves that line. And now yeah. I feel like everyone that reads it. If anyone ever asks me to, like, you know, read something for them, now they'll say, like, could you read this the with MMI. an AI? <laughs> um so and it's an interesting line because my sort of understanding of this line has kind of evolved over um over time and the more I think about it and the more I read because um you know as you say Galileo was he he was also a writer so you know one of the things I think that was so interesting to me in doing this Book, and it's something that I think people working in the history of science are, you know, now, you know, there's lots of people talking about this. But out, outside of that field, I don't know how much people think about it. Just like the way that all these things were so integrated. Right. So you don't really have, you know, it's, there's not the separation of fields that we have today. You know, you're in the arts or you're in the sciences. People were doing all kinds of things all at once. And it was just all tangled together, which I find really wonderful. So, you know, Galileo was not just an astronomer. He was seen by the people that he that he knew and the people that knew of him also as, you know, a very um, lettered person and as a, as, a, as a writer and as somebody who kind of knew how to navigate the patronage networks that writers needed. Um, and he was seen as a supporter of writers. So um, Saroki, you know, was certainly appealing to that Primarily to that aspect of him, I think, you know, what she wanted from him really didn't have much to do with um, the scientific aspect, but they sort of develop this um, this relationship where she's approaching him as a primarily as a literary figure who can help her with her literary work. And then he, in exchange, is seeking help from her to defend his scientific work. So it's kind of this interesting, you know, back and forth between what they each need from one another and what they can each offer. Um, But so, so Galileo, he, I mean, as you said, he, he wrote works of literary criticism. He wrote some sonnets. Um, He wrote, you know, his, his big work is the, the dialogue on the two um, chief world systems. And, you know, as as many scholars have talked about, that's a that's a work that he decided to write in Italian and to structure as a dialogue, so that it it could be read as a literary work and in that way be much more accessible than if he had chosen to write it as a treatise, you know, in in Latin or something. So um, he's clearly you know interested in these literary um, in 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 right in. in, in literary text in producing them himself but also in critiquing them. And so to come back to that line that you um, mentioned, uh, the thing about Galileo is that we were t- we were talking earlier about Ariosto and Tasso and the thing about Galileo is that Galileo preferred Ariosto to Tasso. And so, you know, one question then is so why does, you know, why does Saroki choose somebody who is known to prefer the model that she does not follow for her epic poem? So Galileo had written um uh some some um, criticism on Tasso called the Considerations on Tasso, where he kind of discusses Ariosto and Tasso and he explains why he thinks Ariosto is the superior model and people knew that about Galileo. So why is she writing to him to ask these questions? So I think there's a couple um responses to that and and primarily I think the first thing is that she's writing to him because he is a Tuscan writer. And so writing in Tuscan Italian, as close to Florentine really as you can get, is um that's the model right now for literary work. So even Sarocchi who comes from Naples and then is living in Rome is trying to clean up her Italian so that it can appear Tuscan because that's what you you know she would have aspired to as a literary Writer, So that was, you know, one thing she wanted from him. Um, but the other thing in terms of that line that you mentioned, is when she says, you know, read this with an enemy eye, I think on one level, what she's saying is just read this critically. And tell me everything that you see wrong with it so that I can fix it. Um, And she also asks him to share it with other people in his circle, you know, so she can get as much feedback as possible so that she can fix it. But I think she's also asking him to read it as somebody who supports Ariosto. And that's the enemy I, too, right? Like I'm showing it to you so that I can get the opinion of somebody who's not supporting my model. So I think that's kind of interesting as well
1: that's right and the letters also discuss um what you were just invoking and mentioning which is tuscan as a language um right for literature in the sixth letter from soroki to galileo in january 13 1612 she said explicitly i would like um the epic poem right to be as Mm -hmm. Tuscan as possible being that tuscan sounds so sweet um so that even comes out right explicitly in the letters
0: Yes, she's she's very clear about it. Yeah, that that's what she wants him to help with. Mhm.
1: So Galileo is getting something out of this too, as you mentioned, and this is actually um, this takes us to the second major theme that you identify in the letters, and this is Soroki's efforts to defend Galileo's discoveries to the scientific community in Italy. Now, for listeners who are new to this story, who may know that Galileo, you know, was a famous scientist, he discovered some stuff, he upset some people. <laughs> can you um, can you briefly describe this controversy? Like, what's the big yeah. deal? with Galileo's Med- Medician stars and his observations yeah. of the moon and the Jupiter satellites and the phases of Venus.
0: So one thing I sort of enjoyed about working on this book is just that this whole episode, it's, you know, it's an early part of his career. It's well before he writes the dialogue on the chief world systems. It's before all of that. So, you know, nothing has gone wrong for him yet. And, um, this is the moment where Galileo first develops the, um, the telescope right the telescope has been sort of invented and he works on it and refines it and then he decides that he's going to use it instead of you know using it to look for oncoming armies or something like that he decides he's going to look at the sky and when he does you know he sees as you said the um over over a period of time he observes that there are these satellites that are uh, revolving around Jupiter and Eventually, he'll go on to observe the phases of Venus and the rings of Saturn. And this is all what he ends up um, publishing in his um, starry messenger and, and works thereafter. And so the, the controversy was essentially, you know, whether these things were verifiable, you know, did Galileo really see these things through his telescope? Um, or, you know, is he making it up? Or did he think he saw something that he didn't really see? Or was it a one time thing? And so, all over the place suddenly, you know, people are trying to, um, you know, use telescopes and observe those things for themselves so that they can decide whether they, you know, are really true or just something that Galileo, you know, thought he, he might have seen. And so there's a lot of Sort of back and forth over that, and it's a big moment for Galileo when finally in Rome um, at the Collegio Romano they they do observe these things, and then they certify those those discoveries, and that's when Galileo ends up coming down to Rome, um, doing uh, doing some um, demonstrations of the telescope with you know various. Parts of the uh, community there, and um, that's when he meets Saroki as well, who probably participated in one of these demonstrations her, herself. So, um, so there's just a lot of back and forth from different parts of Italy and different parts of and uh, between Italy and Europe about whether or not Galileo actually observed these these things, and um, that's where she jumps in. So he wants her, um, he wants her to support him by being able to say. I, I saw these things myself. So there is um, a letter that I translated. I mean, I had to decide when I did this book, which letters I was going to include. And that was kind of a difficult decision in the sense that there, there are only um, seven letters of Saroki to Galileo. There's one of Galileo to Saroki. Then there are numerous letters in which kind of tangentially she comes up in some way. So she's present in, in, in other ways. So what, um, I decided just to include a couple of these other letters that I thought really helped kind of contextualize what was, what was going on. And one is this letter from um, Guido Bechtoli, who is in Perugia at the uh, university in Perugia, who writes to her to say, you know, people here are saying that these things aren't true. Like Galileo didn't really observe these things. And, you know, I'm very confused and sort of mortified by it and I want to know your opinion. And it's, just this very interesting moment to have you know someone writing directly to Sadoki this poet and this woman um in Rome to ask her you know what what does she think and he says really clearly you know you we you're known to be so um so learned in this field that your your testimony will go a long way. So, you know, what do you think? And so that's kind of what she is doing for Galileo is she she writes back and she says, you know, I saw this. I used the telescope myself. I observed this with my own eyes. And she's very specific about what she observed. Um, and that kind of thing was important to, to Galileo.
1: Can you say a little bit more, um, since you were just talking a little bit about it, about how you decided what to include here, sort of?
0: Ultimately, I decided not to include much that was outside of the actual correspondence between Saroki and Galileo, because I wanted that to be the primary focus. What did they personally, you know, write about? What was their relationship to one another? And, um, you know, the thing that is sort of frustrating and challenging about that is that as with, um, you know, any correspondence and I've, I've worked on letters and correspondence for pretty much in every book I've ever done. It's something I'm just very interested in. And the thing that is, um, you know, both sort of fascinating and, and, and really frustrating is that anytime you have a correspondence, like you're missing something, right? You're only getting one half of the, unless you happen to be so lucky as to have, you know, both sides of the correspondence, which it's usually not that, um, it's usually not that easy let's say you're always trying to fill in all these blanks, and so the fact that there are seven letters to of Saroki to Galileo, you know all that says to me is that at one time there were many, many more because there are letters where she says, "Oh, you know, I got your letter, or as I said in my letter, you know there are these references where you can tell that there was more to that correspondence that we just don't have um and by the same token, we only have this one letter of him to her, but I imagine that there are probably um many more. So I chose the existing letters because I wanted the focus to be on that since there is no full edition or there was no full edition of the, of that correspondence. But then I did think that there were a couple cases where, um, a letter by somebody else in the, in that circle would really shed, you know, more light on what was happening. So this letter that we were just talking about by, um, the exchange with Guido Bechtoli, I think really shows, um, kind of what her standing was in this community that somebody in Perugia would um, have a question about Galileo. And instead of going to Valerio, for example, or to anyone else in, in um, you know, at the, at the Academia de Lincei or anyone else, which they may also have done, they went to her to see what she thought. I think that really shows kind of what her position was, the kind of intellectual authority that she wielded. And then, The other letter that I included was the one we were talking about earlier by Luca Valerio, the one where he talks about her um, being a widow. And that letter I felt was important to include because um, that letter is written later in 1613. So it's after the last, um, it's well after the last surviving letter we have between Serochi and Galileo. And the historians have um, basically, I think, every account I have read of this correspondence have said something to the effect of, well, you know, at a certain point, Serochi just got really angry at Galileo that he wasn't revising her manuscript the way she wanted. And in a fit of, you know, annoyance, she just broke off the whole thing. And that's the explanation for what happened, why there's no more letters. And I just always found that kind of um, unsatisfying as a, as a, explanation. And so when you look at this Luca Valerio letter, that's, you know, several years later, what you see is in the last paragraph, um, he's writing to Galileo and he's giving him an update on Saroki and he's saying she's still revising her poem and this is what's going on. And she's going to, um, to publish it. And, um, it's all very, um, sort of friendly and positive. I mean, there's just not, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't suggest anything about them being enemies in any way at this point. Um, so that was the reason that I wanted to um, include that, to show that in, in some way that even, we, even though we don't have letters of theirs from after um, the date of, of the last letter I include in this book, I don't think that that means that that relationship was necessarily over at that point.
1: You say a little bit in the book about um, speculation around how and why their correspondence may have ended. Um, Could you speak a little bit to that right now?
0: What did happen, which we do know. So this letter we were just talking about from Luca Valerio is from 1613. And then we know that in 1616, that's when Galileo gets called to Rome and um, sort of the, the trouble starts to brew for him in terms of, you know, what is he, is he, um, you know, that's when he's told he can't teach or write about um, Copernicanism and things sort of start to heat up and and the waters start to become muddied. And um, we do know that Valerio is a member of this academy, the Academia de Linche, of which Galileo is also a member. And that that Academy was very invested in protecting and supporting Galileo. So even when this all starts to happen, you know, when Galileo starts to run into trouble, they, they are still supporting him. But Luca Valerio um, apparently seems to become, you know, maybe a little bit worried and frightened. And so he actually tries to resign his membership from the Academy. And that was just something that was not done. And it was... Um, apparently rather shocking to all the members of the Academy and they, they refused to let him resign, but then they, you know, wouldn't, they at the same time wouldn't let him continue as a sort of full fledged member of the Academy. So we know that, that this happened, that Valerio tried to distance himself from Galileo and from the Academy at that moment. Um, So the question is, did Soroky do the same thing? And, you know, we really just don't, have an answer to that question. I mean, I think that it is possible, Um, but it's a difficult question to answer because I think that um, we don't, you know, she says in her, in her letter, in the letter where she defends Galileo's discoveries, she never comes straight out and says that she, um, you know, she doesn't explicitly say she supports Copernicanism, but she also never says that she does not. But we know from The um, prefatory letter to the first edition of her uh, epic poem, for example, that she was kind of concerned about being perceived as, you know, transgressing the lines between what was orthodox and what was not. And she seemed to have some concern for that. We see that in the way that she edited her manuscript, Um, other things that were written about her specifically things that talked about how skilled she was in astrology for example um, were very careful always you know like almost too careful to explain that everything that she does is totally in the bounds of what's acceptable um so you do get a sense that she you know I'm sure completely reasonably was concerned about how she was perceived and maybe a little you know afraid of being perceived as doing anything that crossed the the line so did she take her distance from Galileo I mean maybe and that's probably a more likely scenario than her ending the correspondence because she didn't think he was revising it fast enough um, you know the, the letter that we do have from Galileo to Saroki is a perfectly lovely letter where he apologizes profusely for his slowness in revising this manuscript and he explains all the um, you know in, in great detail all the physical um you know problems he's having he was in poor health and he describes to her you know what his symptoms are and things like that but it's a very friendly letter it closes very you know affectionately so um you know i i think we just can't quite know the answer to that question because the nature of correspondence is that you just don't know when it ends because the fact that we don't have letters doesn't mean that they didn't exist But I do think that that was possible, given that uh, Valerio, who she had this very, very close relationship with, took his distance in that way.
1: So there's also a third major theme before we kind of um, come (laughs) to our close that we haven't talked about, which is something that comes up in the context of some really fascinating moments in the letters. And this is the shared interest that Soroki and Galileo had in judicial astrology And in natal charts or nativities. So for listeners who hear this judicial astrology, like what is that? And what are natal charts? Um, Meredith, can you say a little bit about those two things? What are they and, and what do they have to do with what's happening in the letters?
0: Right. So this is another really interesting aspect of the letters that Saroki and Galileo were both very interested in astrology. And they think, you know, that's certainly not an aspect of Galileo. That is like the first thing to jump into people's minds when they think about Galileo. But astrology was you know, it was taught as a discipline, it was still very much something that people were um, interested in. Some of the first objections to when, you know, Galileo discovered these satellites of Jupiter, in fact, were, you know, what would that mean for the zodiac, if you start introducing new celestial bodies, what happens to the whole system. So people, you know, took astrology quite seriously. Um, Judicial astrology is essentially the, um, the idea that um, the movements of the, of the, Bo- the celestial bodies can have an influence on human affairs, and um, the sort of tricky point there is kind of how much of an influence do they have, right? Because the the, the fine line is um, you can look at somebody's chart, and a natal chart is essentially um, a calculation of where all the planets and bodies were at the moment of somebody's birth, and what that might mean about what their let, you know, the direction that their life might take them in. But at the same time, like you can't say you can't say too much about it because you can't deny the role of free will. So people would get into trouble when they would become too um, deterministic in their charts, let's say. Um, and, and Galileo himself actually ran into some trouble in the um, Inquisition you know, early on before his correspondence with um uh, began because he would make these charts for clients um, for money and um, at a certain point, someone reported him. And the question um, at the heart of the of the incident was, you know, whether he went too far in the determinism of his um, charts. So but at the same time, these were really, really popular things. People would give them um, as gifts, for example. They were popular kind of among the elite classes, um, and Saroki was clearly very well known for her, um, her interest in them and her skill in astrology in general. So, some of the, the contemporary biographical sources about her specifically talk about her being skilled in astrology.
1: There's a letter at letter two, um, and I just have to read a moment because this was one of the moments um, in the book that has lots of exclamation points in the margins' I was like what, <laughs> what, what? <laughs> so letter two um Soroki is writing to Galileo September tenth sixteen eleven is the date of the letter, and she tells Galileo about receiving a, a request from an Augustinian friar in Perugia to draw up a natal chart for quote a young girl to whom an incredible thing had happened. Her mother, believing she had strangled her daughter, tossed her into a sewer. The child was heard crying and retrieved and recovered very well and survives. And it's just one of these moments or what?
0: I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This whole thing, this whole exchange, I just found fascinating because it's so entangled with everything else, right? So this is an an incident that she, and she's describing this to Galileo. So I I think that's also very interesting, right? Like she's, she has this exchange with this friar who initially writes her to ask her as the other um, Perugian figure did Guido Bechtoli, what she thinks about Galileo's discoveries. At the same time, he also sends her a a natal chart and asks her to look at it. And then he also sends her the chart um, of this, um, or he asks her to do a chart for this young girl who you just described. And this is all like together in one, in one letter, all these things are happening at once. And at the same time, he's, um, he's apparently also belittling her in a certain way because in her, um, Description of this to Galileo, you can see that she like she was insulted by the way that he approached her. And there, there are actually some other letters of the friar that I didn't include in here, where he talks very dismissively about uh, Saroki and her astrological um, activities. Even though he asks her to do his own chart, so I mean I found that kind of interesting, but this yes, yeah, so this episode, I mean, I must have read this you know a hundred times trying to figure out what was going on as I was translating and um, i don't know, except for to say that he mentions the, the friar mentions this mother and this incident again in another letter, so there's a second account of it, but it doesn't explain much more than this and I don't, I I mean, my reading of this is maybe that this was a a baby or a really young child and the mother, I don't know, maybe the mother had enough of her. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. And then somebody has taken her under their wing and wants to know what's going to become of this child in the future. Mm -hmm. It's that's, I mean, it's another of those frustrating things where it's kind of impossible to know exactly what's happening
1: it's so striking right um mm-hmm. it's so striking so it is and then just striking
0: that she's telling galileo all about this but I then know. you keep going you know as you read on you see she's also sending him copies of the letters she exchanged with the person from the university um, from the university in Perugia. so it's this mixture of um you know just all kinds of information kind of being mixed together
1: so given that meredith before or as we come to our conclusion, um, to our conversation, are there any other moments in the letters that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Um, but that you, that are particular favorites for you, we've talked about the enemy eye, we've talked about yeah. the baby, right? We've talked about <laughs> yeah. the skin and the, is there anything, any other favorite moments or favorite aspects of these letters for you?
0: Um, well, I do love the moment in, and it's still in the same, um, exchange uh, regarding the friar and all of that, where it's the only moment. um, I'm trying to see where I can't remember now which letter it was in, but it's really the only moment in which she um, kind of puts her identity as a woman and a woman writer and intellectual at the fore, because one of the things that is kind of interesting about Soroki in comparison to other women writers of this same period is, I mean, this is a period where we, especially in places like Venice, where you really see like the sort of early, early feminism emerging, right? Proto, like proto-feminism, we might say, where it's just very explicit women writers speaking very explicitly about, you know, women's status in society and positioning themselves very clearly as women writers. And that's something that Saroki does not do very overtly, even though I think, you know, it's, it's kind of there implicitly in the fact of, you know, who she is and what she's doing and what she's writing about, but she doesn't um, foreground it necessarily. And so there's a moment, um, I think it's when she's explaining to Galileo about that whole exchange and describing it to him. And she says, you know, essentially he tried to, um, you know, he wrote me to, he wrote to ask me my opinion about your discovery of the stars and whether I thought it was true or not. And then he kind of belittled me because my answer used astrology to defend your astronomical discoveries. And then she goes on to say, but, you know, but basically I, I just set, you know, I set him straight. I've set better people than him straight before. And I did it even I did it with him, even though I'm just a woman and he's a learned friar. And I just kind of loved that moment. She really just puts him in his place. <laughs>
1: So, Marta, thank you so much for that and thank you for everything um, that you've shared with us today now there's a lot in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about, and hopefully listeners will become readers and they 'll get their hands on a copy of the book and they'll be able to explore for themselves. but in the meantime, is there anything in particular that we haven't had a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners
0: um, well, I guess I would just say that i I, I hope that you know one of the um, things that will be interesting to people and useful to people about this book is that it really can be, um, it's, it can really be used as a teaching resource. I just feel so strongly that we need to make sure to integrate the, um, you know, the fact that women were, were also participating in these conversations about science in the early modern period, and we need to integrate that into our teaching as well as our research. And so one of my goals in in producing the book, I mean, you'll see it's not, it's not a super lengthy book. Um, It's very, you know, the letters are included at the end with lots of notes. And I really wanted it to just be, um, you know, something that could be easily used as a tool just to make the point that these people weren't, um, you know, even Galileo wasn't working in isolation on his own. You know, he, he, Certainly had lots of other people that, you know, influenced him, but men and women also were collaborating together in lots of different ways. And I think that if we sort of um, kind of adjust like how we approach that question and where we look for evidence of it, we find just a much richer picture of what women were actually doing and how they were participating in that conversation about science.
1: You said a little bit at the beginning about this um, racy trilogy, right? The convent in hell, et cetera, (laughs) (laughs) that you're working on. Is there (laughs) anything else that you'd like to mention um, about what you're working on now and what's next for you now that the book is out?
0: Yeah. So um, I think, you know, for me, what happens very often is that just one project leads to the next, as I'm sure happens for many people. You you know, you know just come across these things that you can't quite fully explore and then you file them away to come back to. So, you know, now I've done this work on Saroki, but um, in the chap in my original chapter on her in um, the book, in the Daughters of Alchemy book, I had paired her with another figure, Camilla Erculiani who was um, an apothecary in Padua and wrote a book of um, letters on natural philosophy that she published in Poland. And so ever since I wrote, that chapter, I just haven't really been able to stop thinking about this sort of interesting connection between, um, you know, Padua and Poland, and how did this, you know, how did this apothecary come to publish her book on natural philosophy in Poland, and she dedicates it to the Queen of Poland? So that kind of got me going on a new project, which has to do with the um, the relationship between or the the communities of women that were sort of on the move between Italy and. Um, parts to the east of Italy, let's say. So um, right now I'm working on Poland, but I'm also interested in places like Dalmatia. But Poland, of course, has um, a series of Italian queens, and they're very involved in the scientific conversation. So that's I'm kind of interested in those transnational um, relationships between women in this period.
1: Well, best of luck with that work, Meredith, which also sounds great. And thanks so much for making time to talk with me about this book. Um, It was really a pleasure.
0: Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. You've
1: been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you might also want to check out the previous interview that Meredith and I did about her first book, Daughters of Alchemy, that came out with Harvard University Press. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?